Welcome to the Pool Nation podcast, where it's all pool talk. And we ain't talking about netting and jetting or splashing and dashing. We're talking about becoming a nation of pool pros. We talk about the latest products, trends, and training in the pool industry. Now let's welcome your host with over a decade of industry insider experience and still the reigning champion of Marco Polo, Edgar De Jesus, and his co-host, John J.J. Flawless, the fastest netter in the West, and Zach the Pool Boy Nicholas. Welcome, everyone, to the Pool Nation Live podcast. Today, we have a special episode. As most of you are aware, our good friend Bob Lowry passed away November 17th, leaving a big void in all of our lives. And a couple weeks before his passing, Bob had recorded a podcast with a good friend of his, Eric Herman, really kind of talking about Bob's life and how he ended up into the pool industry. And so he had asked for me to edit this podcast and be able to put it out there and share it. So we have edited that podcast and we're going to turn it into a two-part series in honor of Bob. So without further ado, here is part one of a two-part series on the life of Bob Lowry. Hello, everybody. Glad you could join us. My name is Eric Herman. It is October 21st, I'm coming to you from Palm Springs, and through the magic of Zoom, we are talking today with a man I've admired for a long, long time. Three decades I've known. Robert W. Lowry, Bob Lowry. Thanks for joining me, Bob. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about your experience, your background and experience in the industry, which is frankly, by any objective measure, extraordinary. You know, you're obviously somebody that's been around for what? About, we pushing 50 years in the industry now? Yeah, this is uh, coming up on the end of 48. So next year is the 49th year I'll be in the pool industry. I got in the pool industry in 1973. 1973. Uh, may I ask how old you are now? Uh, three weeks ago, I turned 75. Happy belated birthday, sir. <laughs> 75. Well, that, that 75 sounds like a good number to uh, recap such an extraordinary career. You know, uh, you're so well known, but I think it's worth mentioning that 48 years in the industry, you have founded and co-owned two chemical manufacturing companies, right? Or right. packaging, Leisure Time Chemical and Robarb. Yeah. Uh, of course, you founded and co-owned the great service industry news, which is still in publication today. I did that. Which is started in 1985. You were technical director for Leslie's Pool Mart, worked with Dell Ozone, consulted for DuPont, Olin, Nalco, Arch Chemicals, and have uh, assisted companies in our and the pool industry specifically, including natural chemistry, Lamont ITS, Kentaran Jacuzzi. As a fellow scribbler of words, I'm very impressed by your published record, of course, with uh, 21 books. 21 books I have published. 
That is amazing. 175 articles, some of which I've participated in as editor over these years. Very yeah, you know, that. 75 is, 175 is probably an estimate. It's probably in excess of 200, but. It's a lot. It's a lot of it, words. It matters when it's five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've uh, done 29 white papers. Is that an estimate or do you have a firm? No, it's 29 real white papers. Real white papers. Really white. Yes. Uh, did a, you were a columnist for Pool and Spa News. 500 water chemistry seminars. And that's got to be a rough estimate. I mean, it's yeah, it's every- probably closer to 600. But, you know, when I had Leisure Time Chemical, we were giving a seminar a week on water chemistry uh, in the early 80s. And so uh, it was racking up. I was given every trade show I was given a, a seminar at. And I was probably giving. I don't know, easily 50 seminars a year. Well, that's probably a lot more than 500 when you stop and start adding it up. Yeah, you I, know, and it's interesting to think the number of people that you've taught how to do an important part of their jobs, you know, that's kind of a heady thing to consider how important the information you've shared in those seminars has been to the way people earn their living. Um, Well, you know, it started pretty much when I started Leisure Time Chemical. It was the infancy of the spa industry. And service techs and homeowners didn't know what to do. You know, I mean, when I got in the industry, we had salesmen from the spa companies tell them, listen, just pour a, a half a cup of Clorox in your spa once a week and you'll be fine. And they never told them you needed to check the pH or the alkalinity or the chlorine level or anything. And, you know, then a couple of months later, you know, when the spa had problems or, or even before that, people started calling me, calling service techs, you know, what do I do? And the service techs, you know, found out that I was available because I was trying to learn about the pool industry and pools and spas and stuff. And I needed to learn too. So I took all the calls that I could get. People would call up and say, what do I do? And, and we'd figure it out. And then it just, the word got around that, you know, you can call Bob and my partner at Leisure Time and even my national sales manager kept saying, why don't you mention products when you talk to people? You keep telling them generically what to do. And I just had a, a philosophy that I've kept for years that if you give people good, honest information about what to do for a problem, they'll reward you when they need your products, they'll reward you by buying your products. And so I didn't finish every sentence with, you know, you could solve this problem with one of our products. I, I finished the sentence with, if you do what I tell you, you won't have a problem. And it just got the word got out and I gave every seminar I could give. You know, when I, when I started in the industry, it was in 1989, and the first uh, trade show I went to was uh, PIE, and it was in San Jose that year. And uh, I was already familiar with what you guys were doing in service industry news and how it had really connected with a previously underserved segment of the industry. Yeah. And when I got to that show, it was 
obvious that your program, and I believe you were doing a four hour seminar yeah. at that time. Saturday then. morning for, Saturday, yeah. I don't know, 15 years, I gave a Saturday morning of the show. I gave a four hour water chemistry seminar. Well, that was like new information back in 1989 to a lot of people. And you were uh, kind of a rock star. I remember seeing how so many people, you know, I watched from afar. I don't even think you knew who I was at that point. But I, I watched how you were attracting so much attention and people were turning to you with these huge gaps in knowledge and the excitement that was surrounding your class and the importance of uh, service industry news at that time. And uh, that was really my introduction to pool chemistry. And I very quietly slipped into the back of that class that morning and sat there dutifully and thought, okay, this, <laughs> this is the source, you know? And unfortunately you were publishing a competing publication. So I couldn't just call you and like ask everything all the time, but I watched, <laughs> watched very closely. <clears throat> Hey, let's back up a little bit here because uh, there's so much to say about this stuff, but I have some gaps in my own knowledge and I was thinking about like, wow, some things I don't know, like, and these are burning questions, Bob, like, what does the W stand for? William. William. Thank you. I, and, I, I'm and, glad we and my dad, that one my, my dad was William K. So I ended up with Robert W. Robert, Robert W. And there, there was another... Robert Lowry in our industry. His actually name was Neil Robert Lowry. Oh, and we knew him as Neil Lowry. Right. And we used to, and he was a PhD chemist. And people used to always confuse us um, just by the name. But we differed a little bit on our philosophy and, and how we approached uh, pool and spa water chemistry. But anyway. You guys were like uh, Audrey and Catherine Hepburn, you know, <laughs> last name, no relation in the same job, essentially. Yeah, so, so we, <laughs> got icons. we got confused a lot. <laughs> but, um, what, and, he, and he always thought we were related and I never thought we were. So <laughs> I, well, um, I think the name Lowry will always be synonymous with water chemistry, especially in this industry. He's been gone quite a while, Neil Lowry. Yeah, he has. I, I don't remember when he died. I, I do remember that he actually collapsed on stage giving a seminar. He collapsed because he had a tremendous infection. I'm not sure what his beliefs were, but he didn't believe in going to doctors and hospitals and things like that. And so by the time they got him to the hospital and tried to get enough antibiotics into them. It, it was uh, a valiant effort, but didn't work. That was a loss at that time, for sure. Yeah, uh, well, anybody that's a, uh, an educator and passes along technical information is an important person in our industry. And I never did it with the idea of selling chemicals. I did it with the idea of improving the education level of anybody that would listen. Other dumb question here, what, where are you from originally? Well, you know, if you go back all the way to birth, I was born in Ohio, uh, but the age of, at the age of six, we moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
So I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I was a very active athlete, along with my giant brother, who was a, an incredible athlete. And so I was always in his shadow. I was never as good as him at a lot of things, but that also made me better than most people at everything. So, <laughs> but but uh, he was um, 6'5 and about 265 when he graduated from high school in 1963. And I don't know if you know anything. People were just not that big back then. And he was a, a head taller than everybody in the school and at least 80 or 90 pounds heavier. You know, he was just a giant. What and he was very, name? Steve. Steve. He was a super athlete. He played all sports, so did I. We both were on the starting teams of everything we played. You know, we lived outdoors in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was either at the beach trying to trying to get a tan and pick up girls, or I was at the beach playing volleyball or basketball or football or anything. And I was continuously in the, in the sun and continually outdoors. Did you have a favorite water sport? Did you surf, fish? I did surf. I did water ski. Uh, I had a boat because Fort Lauderdale is actually called the Venice of Florida. And um, everybody had a boat back then. I had a little outboard boat and uh, uh, used to take girls on dates on, on my boat. And we used to go water skiing on the weekends. And I had friends that started ski schools and things like that. We, a lot of times, surfed. We snorkeled a lot. We skin dived with uh, what became scuba gear. Back then, it wasn't called scuba. Well, it was beginning to be called scuba. But, um, you know, they were called aqua lungs uh, back then. They weren't called, you know, scuba tanks. But um, I joined the Boy Scouts and, and did well in that and then became an Explorer Scout and went on trips with National Geographic and stuff doing photographing stuff around uh, Key West. Uh, we dove with what in those days was called the UDT team out of uh, Key West, which was uh, the Navy uh, UDT team, which eventually became um, SEAL team. <laughs> uh, so we trained with those people and stuff. And, and it was all, we actually went diving with them a few times. And that was kind of a cool thing to do too when I was younger. So we did that. And I uh, graduated from high school, Fort Lauderdale High School in 1964. I wanted to get a jump on education. And so I went to a community college in Broward County and um, went for their summer course and took a few courses. And it was really an awful thing. It was like going to the 13th grade. And um, the college was fairly new and uh, they really didn't have that great of instructors. And I, I found it awful. And I, about six weeks into it, I dropped out uh, because I was going to go to the University of Florida and play football. And um, what position so, did you play? I was a fullback in those days. And just give me the ball and I'll get you a few yards. But in those days, uh, believe it or not, I played offense and defense. And in those days, many players did that. When, when the other team got the ball, everybody stayed on the field. Uh, so we didn't have 
substitutions or mass substitutions. So when we played a football game, we played the whole game. Um, most of us did. So anyway, I was supposed to play football at University of Florida. I went up there, got my ID card, got my classes, got an apartment. And mom called and said, hey, you got this thing here from the Selective Service. And I said, what is that? She said, well, it looks like um, they're saying that you could be drafted. And I said, I'm in college. Just send me that thing up here and I'll take care of it. So she sent it up. I went down to the Selective Service office and said, here's my ID card. And I'm a full-time student at U of F. And they said, wait a minute, and came back and said, you know, our records show you went to a Broward Junior College. I said, yeah. They said, and you dropped out. And I said, yeah, I did. And they said, well, you know, college dropouts are draftable. And so uh, even though I was now a full-time student at U of F, I was a college dropout, according to their records, and I could be drafted. So yours truly joined the United States Army. Um, instead of being a draftee, I enlisted in the United States Army and uh, immediately went to Fort Jackson and went through basic training. And on the way through basic training, they uh, noticed that I was a, an excellent shot with a rifle. And I was also very obviously strong and healthy because I wasn't going to play football. And so basic training to me was like, is that all you got? You know, I, I, I'm doing more than that on my own, man, you know, and so I was smart, I was big, I was, you know, a good shot, and all of a sudden, uh, they said, you're not only a good shot, you're a really good shot, and so they took me over to another rifle range and ran me through a bunch of things with, like, six officers watching me, and finally, they when they were done, they invited me to join the special forces. And I had no idea what that was. I knew zero about the army when I got, got in the army. I had no idea what anything was. And they said, well, it's, it's the special forces. You'll be a green beret. And I said, that's a hat, right? <laughs> and, they were, and they were like, yes, but you have to earn that hat. And, and so they invited me to join the Green Berets. And so I went through uh, Green Beret School and a very short sniper school because we didn't actually have a sniper school until I was already being a sniper. But anyway, I went through all of the Green Beret training, survival training, etc., and immediately went to Vietnam. And part of the training that most uh, service people got in those days that were Green Berets, they had to learn Vietnamese language. And the Vietnamese language course, Vietnamese language is incredibly difficult. And the school for uh, Vietnamese language is 54 weeks, two weeks more than a year. And that's six days a week for eight hours a day. It takes 54 weeks. Spanish at the time, I think, was either 18 or 20 weeks, just to give you an idea. Anyway, the people in the Green Berets said, um, you know, we need snipers in Vietnam, even if they don't speak Vietnamese. And so they uh, shuffled me off to Vietnam, and the rest is 
kind of a little history, but uh, most of what I did in Vietnam was classified and much of it off the books because of what I did. And in many cases, um, even my team members didn't know anything other than my first name, which was not my real name. We did various rescues and, and sanctions and things like that. And I was um, wounded at one point and sliced in my arm at another point and uh, captured at one point. But all of that is uh, a memory and a chapter in my book, in my own book of my life, not another book I've written. But uh, anyway, I was very proud to have served and I am a, a deep patriot. And it was my honor and duty to do that. And when I returned after I, after a short recovery, um, at my peak, I was about 215 pounds and 5'11 in the Green Berets. And then upon returning home, I weighed 135 pounds. Yeah. That was so it took a little there. time to get back, but I got back to my fighting weight of 190, and uh, which is what I still weigh today, by the way. Um, so I've weighed this same amount all of my life. But anyway, went back to University of Florida. University of Florida promptly said, you can't play football with our boys. You're a trained killer, and we don't want you out there with our boys. So my goal of being a, uh, a football player uh, dissolved rather quickly because I couldn't play. So How long did you uh, serve? Well, that's kind of debatable. And part of that is still very classified and off the books. I spent uh, three years in the Army and a little time working with the CIA because some of the missions that we ran in Vietnam and other places were actually ordered mostly by, by the CIA because they had the intel. The Army didn't have the intel in those days. So many of the things that all of the Green Berets did were co-efforts with the CIA. And so I did some other things with the CIA, mostly planning and uh, nothing in person, but mostly planning. And um, went to University of Florida and got two degrees from the University of Florida in four and a half years. And, and then those degrees in? In chemistry. Both in chemistry? Right. So um, then I promptly dropped out, let my hair grow long. Uh, actually, the problem I had at the University of Florida was that when I came back, every campus in the United States at colleges and universities were protesting the war that I just came back from. And um, I was a decorated hero and um, nobody cared. And in fact, most people uh, didn't even want to get near me. I couldn't get into a fraternity. I couldn't even find a roommate. As soon as they find out I was a vet, nobody wanted to talk to me. And it was pretty, pretty nasty. But as a, a sniper, you're alone anyway. So it didn't really bother me that much. I just kept on moving. And um, I'm enough of a patriot that I went to college and I was allowed to use the GI Bill to go to college for free. And I did not. And my father was willing to pay for me to go to college. And he was a successful cardiologist and surgeon in Fort Lauderdale. 
And he didn't pay me a penny either because I didn't want him to. And uh, I put myself through college. And they were on the quarter system. And I worked one quarter at three jobs. And then I went to school for three quarters without having to work. And so when I graduated from college, I owed zero money to anyone. And I didn't owe the government anything because they kept trying to get me back. What year did you graduate? 70 and the end of 71. What led you to chemistry? Uh, Believe it or not, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college. I really didn't. I had an inkling that I I liked chemistry from some of the demolitions and some of the things I saw done in Vietnam with chemicals and uh, not the treatment of prisoners or anything like that, but with people making dung bombs, for instance. Um, The fact that you could make a bomb from a pile of crap was amazing to me. (laughs) But uh, And the things that you can blow up are quite amazing, too, when you really get into the demolitions thing. But I was not into demolitions, but I was I, I watched the guys with a lot of interest. But nonetheless, I I was concerned with that. And even uh, when I was in the army, I was concerned with water and I was concerned with where, you know, I mean, you're out there drinking water out of the river. Is that going to be OK? You know, and who knows what's in that? And uh, so I got a little concerned with that. And and so my first degree, I actually went to my uh, my advisor and I said, you know, I've got almost enough hours to graduate, but I don't have enough hours in any one thing to to graduate. And so we sat down and figured things out. And the reality was, he said, you know, if you take two two more classes in chemistry and one elective in history or something like that, you can get a BS in chemistry. And I was like, well, can I take them concurrently? You know, I mean, I hope I don't have to take them serially. And so he said, yeah, let me check. And I took the three courses plus some other things. And, you know, lo and behold, I had a bachelor's degree. But I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I hung around and got a master's degree in in a year. And uh, after that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just, uh, my sole means of transportation in those days was a uh, motorcycle. I had kind of long hair and a beard. And so I just kind of started hanging out and doing stuff. I tried to work on my PhD a little bit, but that was going to be a long process. And I just didn't decide I wanted to dedicate myself to a few more years of education. So. I just kind of dropped out. I did odd jobs. I was a bartender. I worked construction. I worked at the zoo for a while. I did some stuff with uh, the CDC for a while and um, just kind of hung out for a couple of years. Then my roommate was trying to make some products for aquariums. He had one product and we together made a couple of more. And we started selling products directly from us to the local tropical fish stores and aquarium stores. We made a clarifier and a, and a product for uh, discus fish, which is a kind of a cichlid fish that, that likes uh, dark water. And uh, we made another product called IntraCure, 
And it was taken off like gangbusters, and we thought we we're going to go to the moon with it. And there was a system of vitamins and supplements and, and an antibiotic that we made into a, an attractive uh, or an attractant in liquid form. And uh, even a sick fish will eat. So we were able to say, put a couple of drops of this onto your normal fish's food and they will eat the food and get the medication and get well. And the idea was that, you know, when you go to the hospital, they don't treat the air. So why are we adding chemicals to the water that these fish are breathing from? How does that work? And so uh, we just came up with the idea we need to give the medication internally. And it turned out to be true. We cured all kinds of fishes and we were getting write-ups in magazines and stuff. I, there were write-ups in magazines I never even heard of. And we thought we were just going to go on the easy street with this thing. And the FDA got involved with us. And the FDA came along the first time we had a meeting with them. And they said, uh, you know, how do you know how much vitamin A to put in here? And how much, how much, how do you know how much vitamin C to put in here? And so on. And so we were like, you know, we're kind of backing up a little bit, just a couple of college guys. And eventually I said, well, wait a minute. Does the FDA have a minimum daily requirement for fish? And, they were, and that kind of stopped them a little. They were like, well, no. And I said, well, then why are you, why are you asking me how much is in there if you don't have a requirement for it anyway? What's the difference? And so they were like, well, okay. And literally the guy on the way out said, I'll be back. And I thought, well, what kind of a grudge do you have? What is that? You know, and so. We kept going, and about six months later, this um, guy came back, and he walked in the door, and he said, I got you now. And I was like, what? He said, well, you know, is it possible that someone could use your product in a place that, that grows fish, in a fish farm? Like they grow catfish and trout and stuff like that. Is it possible that they could do that? And I said, well... I suppose it is, but it says on the label, it's for tropical ornamental fish. And it doesn't say it's for fish farm. And he said, yeah, but it's possible they could buy it and use it. And I said, well, you know, and it's one of those questions like, is it possible to do this? And you know, the typical answer is, yes, it's possible, but it's probably not probable, you know, kind of thing. But um, they were like, well, you're administering antibiotics to the public without their knowledge. And you have to take the, the antibiotic out of it, or it'll have to be a prescription. And I said, Yeah, right. You're gonna call, you're gonna call the vet and he's gonna write a prescription for your fish. <laughs> and so I, you know, they and they made us destroy all the product and throw away all the labels and everything else and, and stop selling. So we were making products for aquariums for a while. Then uh, Joe, well, Joe Arbacheski. Uh, he and I were roommates, and we uh, we were hunters and fishermen and stuff like that, outdoorsmen. And a group of guys from the Center for Disease Control leased about 560 acres of land in South Georgia. And we used it, we managed it, and we hunted it year-round. You know, we hunted during deer season and pheasant season, and I got uh, I was pretty outdoorsy in those days, and 
in those days, I got a uh, one of only two trappers license that was issued in in like 1973 or 74. I had a trapper's license in Georgia. And so I was officially a trapper and we hunted the land and stuff like that. But the cool thing was that there were 20 guys from the CDC around and everybody would go hunting during the day and do whatever they did. And then, you know, build tree houses and uh, I mean, tree stands so that you could uh, see game better and had their own little chunk of of the 560 acres. And at nighttime, we all gathered around the fire and we'd have a fire pit and we'd all get a, a beverage and start talking. And, and it was a, a real brain trust. You know, we had guys that were MDs, PhDs, you know, all kinds of guys around the fire. And the conversations were some guys say, well, you know, I've got a problem. And you know, 19 other people would jump in and help him solve it. And so uh, Joe and I had made a product for aquariums that was a clarifier and it was called FilterAid. And we, uh, in fact, it was so concentrated that you could put two drops in a 10 gallon aquarium was all you needed. And so this guy, one of the guys around the fire said, um, so you guys make a clarifier for aquariums, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, how does that work? And I explained it to him that, you know, how it works. And people know today how polymer clarifiers work. And um, so I explained all of that. And when he was done, he said, would that work in my pool? <laughs> and of course, the light went on for us. And, you know, we thought, gee, there's a lot more pools, you know, a lot more luxury, a lot more. You know, there's no downside to being in this pool industry thing. So the next day or the next weekend, we tried it in this guy's pools. And, and it was amazing. Uh, even to me and I, Joe and I invented it and put it in the water, cleared up his pool completely. Looked like a glass of water. Um, and in fact, we then called the product Crystal Clear was the original name of the Robar product and ROB came from, from Robert and ARB came from Arbacheski. Um, so we ended up with Robar, but, um, and the other fish company was also called that. But um, anyway, uh, we started making products and it was just Joe and I for a few years and, and we were getting successful and uh, Joe only wanted to, to make one product. And I thought, you know, gee, as soon as the other guys figure out what we did, what are we going to have? We don't have anything new. So we kind of argued over that. We ended up splitting up in 1977. In 1977, I found a, a guy in La Cañada, California, that had some money that wanted to start a chemical company in the pool industry. He was already a kind of a distributor for us in California for Robarb. So I asked him if he wanted to start a chemical company and I flew out and talked to him and we uh, agreed to agree. And a few weeks later, I got on my motorcycle by myself and went to California from Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia. That's so, a long drive. Uh, Was this the great yeah, Stan Freeman that we're talking about? Yeah, we're talking about Stan Freeman. And initially, we actually had, there were three of us, 
that started the company, um, Ed Turner, Stan Freeman, and I, about, I don't know, probably right at the one-year point, Ed needed some money. And I don't remember whether it was a business downturn or a divorce or whatever, but he needed some cash. And we bought him out. Stan Freeman and I ended up owning Leisure Time Chemical. We started in 1977, and we started with uh, just a single product uh, pretty much in the back room of a spa company on Victory Boulevard in Glendale. It just grew and grew, and we finally had a building in the back, and then the building was too small. We moved to another building. It was actually a half of a building that uh, Premier Pump owned in Glendale, and we leased half of their building from them. And that's where we started buying filling equipment and, and the equipment necessary to fill the bottles and make all the products. We had a couple of tanks and a, a kind of a manual filling machine. And we just, in those days, we filled 10 bottles at a time, put the caps on by hand, put them in a box. You know, it wasn't a, a big deal, but eventually um, at the end of uh, 1985, uh, we sold the company and we were doing four and a half million bottles a year when we sold it. Now, when you started it back in the mid to late 70s, 77, I think you said, uh, that was a time that co corresponded with uh, really the introduction of uh, portable spas. Was yeah, that, that a big, big market for you at that time? Yeah, you know, it's, the great thing about it was that a lot of times your people say something about timing and we were in the right place at the right time and maybe it was my seeing into the future in 77 and i went to california because that's where the spa industry was and i wanted to make spa chemicals and so leisure time chemical was started and we only made spa chemicals for like the first five years we only made spa chemicals we didn't make any pool chemicals we started making spa chemicals by selling originally just a, a spa clarifier called spa bright and clear which is still on the market and probably still one of the best clarifiers around we started with spa bright and clear then we made spa defender we made a foam down product uh, we made ph adjusters we made a polish for spas and so uh, we just kept making products for spas and it was great because um in those days, spa companies were popping up like flowers. It was incredible. Um, you'd drive down the street and you drive down two weeks later and there's two more spa companies on the same street. And everybody was a spa man, you saw a spa dealer. There were no products that said spa on them. None of them did. Everybody just said, well, take a little bit of this pool chemical and pour it in there. And so I was like, that is now you take care of a spa. You know, these chemicals are too strong. You've got different bodies of water. There's heat. There's, you know, more people in them and so on. You can't treat it like a pool, you know. And so they were saying, well, how do you have to treat it? We started learning. And the great thing was, in the beginning, one of our partners was a spa dealer. You know, and he had a, a working spa in his showroom an in-ground working spa. And so I was able to put spa chemicals in there and see how they worked. And we were getting people in there and I get in there 
And so we were able to get some firsthand details of what the chemicals were doing. And then I could go back in the lab and make sure that they were. And so it was a, a great thing for a while. And then I needed more information about what people were doing in pools and how they were servicing them. So believe it or not, I actually stopped working at Leisure Time Chemical and I went to work every day with a service tech from La Crescenta. And he owned a pool store, but he also had a service business. And I rode with him for six weeks every day. So I was just like a service guy. And I rode with him and I did everything a service guy did. So I could learn about pools and, and see firsthand what was going on. Then when I went back to working at Leisure Time, I had this knowledge about pools that other chemists don't get. They don't get that kind of stuff. Well, that's the divide between like bench science and applied science. It really is. And it just became a a lesson that was, was truly a gift because I was able to take that. And Brian Smith was his name. And he died uh, some years right after that. He got cancer and died. But at any rate, uh, he was an instructor also. And his dream in mind was someday to have a school uh, for teaching people water chemistry. And he taught a course in those days to prepare you to take the Los Angeles County exam to be a service tech, because you had to have a license in those days uh, to be a service tech in LA County. He prepared you with his course to take the thing. And so he was always picking my brain about chemistry. And I was always picking his brain about what a service tech does about this and how does that work and how do you backwash a filter. And so, you know, we drained pools and acid washed them. We filled them. We built them. We, you know, we did everything that he did. And so it was a great education for me. And I've always been an applied kind of guy anyway. I've not been, you know, a great theoretical chemist, but um, applied chemist, yes. Theoretical, yeah. It was a great basis for the rest of my career in the pool industry. So this is early 80s when you did that, right? Oh, yeah, that was, in fact, I rode with him, I think it was in 78 or 79. Nobody was making spa chemicals. And so we recognized that early on. And we put the word spa in like two inch letters in bold at the top of every bottle of our product. And so when our salesman walked in the door to a spa store, they would walk in and go, I've got spa chemicals. And the, the owner would practically say, I'll take them without even knowing what they were because they said spa on them instead of pool. We just kind of recognized that. And here we were, two guys not from the pool industry. So we didn't know that there were boundaries that you could do or not do in the pool industry. So we started doing things and everything we did pretty much turned to gold. It was a a rocket trip, uh, almost straight up. It was incredible. In eight years, we were in five different manufacturing buildings. And we went from being literally in a back room to being in a 38,000 square foot building behind the Miller Brewing Company in Irwindale, California. And we had four filling lines that were not totally automated, but almost totally automated. And we did everything but make the bottles. 
we did the decoration, we did the filling, we reacted the chemicals, we did everything in house. We had uh, 65 products on the market. And I researched and developed every single one of those myself. I did not have even a lab assistant working for me. When I did the lab dishes, I washed the dishes myself. I did the research. Stan was not a, a, an engineer or a scientific type. So I ran the manufacturing process. I ran the R&D and I computerized everything. We were able to set up a batch system on the computer so I could hand a, a batch sheet to the lead guy in the plant to make a batch of chemicals. And he knew how much of each ingredient to put in there. And then when he came back and told me how many bottles he filled, the computer would reduce the number of caps and boxes and inserts and tape and everything that went into the making of the product. It reduced my inventory. So I had a running inventory of finished product and raw chemicals. So I knew where we stood on every product at any minute. That must have been pretty progressive using computers back in the early 80s. I mean, that was before personal computers really came around. Yes, it was. And, and we had computers, by the way, when we shared the building with Premier Pump, we got our first computer. And believe it or not, it had two drives in it. One was a permanent hard drive, and the other was a removable hard drive. The permanent hard drive was a giant at the time. It was about 18 inches in diameter. And it had five <laughs> megabytes on it. <laughs> and that seemed the, like a lot then. And the removable one had a handle that fit into the top of the, the drive so you could pick it up and take it out of there. And we had one drive for each day so that we didn't necessarily then need a backup because the worst we could be out would be one day. So we could always, you know, use the other disk from yesterday. We had that computer. And uh, we computerized our billing and all of the, the ordering and everything. When they created a batch sheet, if that produced anything in raw chemicals that was below the order point that I had set, the reorder point, it would flag it and let me know I needed to order something. So I could call the, the vendor and call them up and tell them we need more, more stuff. And Stan and I both had a philosophy of, paying bills before they were due. Instead of stringing people out, we paid it before they were due. And in that way, when we wanted something, they would deliver it right now. We hired a, a plant manager towards the end of our ownership. We hired a plant manager and he came in one day, he said, I don't know how this happened. He said, we're out of bicarb. And I said, no problem. I'll have one here in the morning, a truckload. And he said, you can do that? And I said, yeah. He said, how do you do that? And I said, well, I call the supplier and tell them to send me a truckload. He said, yeah, when I do that, when I did that for the other company I worked for, they would tell me it'd be about three weeks before I could have it. And I said, well, that's because you didn't pay them. <laughs> you know, you know, you, instead of paying them net 30, you'd string them out to 90. So, uh, you know, when we got a bill for net 30, we paid it net 15. Right. So when I needed a favor, they jumped all over it. What a concept. So, with so many uh, different products that you've created, do you hold patents for some of them? No, they were all, uh, in fact, you know, I know how to patent things, but what I did was I kept every one of these products as a trade secret. 
And the trade secret was that I knew it and I knew who I told it to. And so even the guys in the plant didn't know because we worked out deals with the big manufacturers to send products with just a product designation on it, usually a number. So uh, the barrels of the product didn't say what was in it. It had a product number on it. And if you looked up the product number, it wouldn't go anyplace except to the manufacturer. And if you call them and said, what is this? They'd tell you that belongs to a company, you know, and they can't tell you what's in it. So other things that were common chemicals, you know, they were just in the plant, but that still doesn't tell you how to mix them together, you know, to make a final product. I knew who I told, I knew where the secrets were. That way I didn't have to worry about somebody slightly changing my formula and making their own product, or at least giving them a lead to how I did it. How long was it before you started uh, having competitors in that part of the market? I think everybody else said, oh, you know, these guys aren't going to do anything with having a spa company. You know, they're not a big deal. And one of the greatest things that we did was most of the companies in those days, they, uh, that were making spa products, they put a few products in a box along with a couple of sponges or thermometers or something and put it in a kind of a pizza box kind of thing. And this was your startup kit for your spa. And as soon as that box gets wet and it gets in the light and everything, the box turns to crap anyway, it looks bad. And so we need something more permanent. So Stan and I went to the company that made the boxes for Sears tools, you know, the craftsman tool, the boxes that they put everything in. We went to that company and said, we need a box. And they built us a little tray uh, with a handle in the middle that we could put four 16 ounce bottles in it, plus a thermometer, some test strips and a sponge and a book on how to take care of your spa. And it was a three day a week program to take care of your spa. We told people how to take care of their spas. It gave them the direction. But then this box, we would shrink wrap it in clear plastic and nothing would then get moved around or shifted around. And uh, Stan and I remembered what Tide did years ago with putting a box of Tide in all the washing machines. And so, we went to each of the spa manufacturers and said, listen, we have this box of chemicals in this nice display and we're gonna sell them to you at cost. And we're gonna sell you these chemicals for like 10 bucks for the box and and what we called a tote, it's called a spa tote. We're going to put it in this nice box and put it there. And it's got a set of directions in it. So it gets you off the hook on how to take care of a spa. And so you buy these and put them in with every spa. And we'll sell them to you for 10 bucks. Out of that, that probably went over pretty well. That went over huge. And so we started doing that. And the other spa manufacturers have found out about it. And practically every spa manufacturer was putting our box of chemicals in with their spa when they sold it. And it was a great time because people would get these boxes, they would empty the bottle out, they'd walk back in the spa store with the empty bottle, 
and say, I need a refill of this. And the store would have the quart size bottles that still fit in their little tote. And that way they had this little tote thing. When they wanted to take care of their spa, they just picked up the tote, went out to their spa, did stuff, put everything back in the tote, went back and put it in their garage or wherever. And we did hundreds of thousands of those. We really did. And we worked with a company at the time that eventually became AquaCheck. But um, we worked with them when they were in their infancy and we became their largest supplier of test strips. And I didn't agree so much with test strips at the time, but I didn't want to try to put in a full tailored test kit with our strips either. So uh, with our box rather. So um, we believed in test strips just to see if your water was kind of okay. What so were you testing? What, what, what was the... The, the strips were five-way test strips. They didn't test for cyanuric acid or, or iron or, or copper, but they did test for pH, uh, alkalinity, free and total chlorine, and hardness. You know, they were five-way strips, and we sold those things by the hundreds of thousands. And it really did put us on the map. Our biggest selling product was our Spa Bright and Clear Clarifier. And you could literally, in practically any spa, if you turned a spa on, you could throw in a, you know, an ounce of Spa Bright and Clear and watch the stuff come out of the water up into the foam into the, in the spa. You could watch the dirt come out of the water. We just had phenomenal success with our, our sales team and everything else was just great. I created a display, a demonstration that was a, about a liter of water. You could fill it up at the pool store. And then we had this dirt that uh, was in a bottle and it was pulverized and homogenized so it wouldn't settle out very well. The salesman would squirt a little bit of dirt in there and say, okay, so here's a dirty spa. And then they take the bottle of Spa Bright and Clear and take one drop of it and put in that liter of water. And all the dirt would drop to the bottom in about 30 seconds. And, <laughs> and with the demo... Uh, Bruce Murdoch, our national sales manager, told me one time, he said, we have a closing rate of 85% when we do a demo. Oh, that's 85, 85%. That's one of those numbers like people would even find it hard to believe, you know? Yeah. And, but without that, he said it was about 50 to 55. That's still Because the spa stores were just dying for stuff. And we had the philosophy that if anybody wanted our product, if there wasn't a distributor there, we'd sell it to you anyway. And originally we went to PWP and, and all the distributors in Southern California. And they said, well, there isn't any demand. We're not going to buy your product. I said, okay, we'll go direct. So we sent all of our salespeople out literally with eight or 10 cases of product in the back of their car and told them to just go out and find the spa stores. And as soon as they went to the spa store, they'd sell a case of product. They hand them a receipt and come back with the money or a check. And that's how we got started doing it that way. Eventually guys like PWP said, uh, excuse me, how do we get to be a distributor? And then, you know, Stan would say, well, you know, you, you guys didn't want us a couple of weeks ago, you know, <laughs> and Stan was pretty good about grinding people like that. And, and uh, he would say, well, you know, as soon as you give us a, 
$2,500 order, you're, you're in. So we made everybody's profit pretty good. Even the stores were paying about $5 for a bottle and selling it for 10. The distributors were making money, the stores were making money, and it was a great product. And we started using Dichlor for spas. It was just easier to throw in a, a cap full or whatever of Dichlor. And uh, that was part of our program. When you get out of the spa, throw in a, you know, an ounce of Dichlor. So it was a pretty good system. We actually got in, uh, we started making our own portable spas. At one oh, time, really? you fiberglass, fiber, we became a manufacturer. And we had a company that made the, the shelves for us, but we assembled the package of, of equipment that went with it. And uh, we sold we sold spas. So I knew from manufacturing, I knew from, you know, I was in the bottom level of all of this stuff as it grew up, you know, and then spas evolved from being a shell that you dug a hole for and put in the ground like a pool to being an appliance, you know, that you just pay your money, bring it home and plug it in. That was the evolution of of how that happened. The spa industry, when I got there in 77, was in its infancy. And there were many companies that actually had patents on the shape of the spa. And so nobody could copy their shape and everybody protected their, their turf pretty well. So, but it made it easy for us to go to them and say, here, here's this box of chemicals. So there were only eight or 10 manufacturers, I think, probably a spas that were of any great size back then. So it wasn't difficult to know who the major players were. Welcome back, everybody. This is Edgar with the Pool Nation podcast, listening to our two-series special on the life of Bob Lowry. So that was part one. We are going to put out part two later this week on Bob's story. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Pool Nation podcast, a member of the Pool Nation family. You can listen to us live every Friday here at 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central, and 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. You can find us at Pool Nation or PoolNationPodcast.com, on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pool.Nation. And to find more info about Pool Invoice, the billing software built specifically for the pool industry, go to PoolInvoice.com. Before you go, this is what the pool industry has been waiting for, PoolManUniversity.com. It's the first platform dedicated to learning the swimming pool service and repair industry, a pool service community where you can connect and find videos on business, service, water chemistry, and repairs. See you there at PoolManUniversity.com.